Hello. Hola. Hello. Ni hao. Bonjour. Hi. Buenos dias. Guten tag. G'day. Welcome to the Husida Podcast, a production of the Human Services Information Technology Association. Hello and welcome to the podcast, March 2021. My name is Dr. Jimmy Young, and in this episode of the podcast, I discuss ethics, technology, and specifically the use of social media like Facebook in the provision of child welfare services. I'm talking with Dr. Tursum Singh Kooner about he and his co-author's article, The Use of Facebook in Social Work Practice with Children and Families, Exploring Complexity in an Emerging Practice, which is available in the Journal of Technology and Human Services. Dr. Tursum Singh Kooner is a senior lecturer and program director for the Master's in Social Work program at the University of Birmingham in the UK. Dr. Kooner has worked as a child and family social worker and became a senior social work practitioner focusing on crisis intervention work with families. While working in crisis intervention, Dr. Kooner was instrumental in introducing and developing the use of solution-focused brief therapy methods in preventing young people from coming into the looked-after system. He also worked as a practice educator during his time in practice. Dr. Kooner has been active in developing innovative learning approaches, such as his mobile phone tablet app, to help social workers explore how to navigate the ethical issues of using social media in social work. He's researched and written about using social media tools like Facebook to link international social work students to explore how to develop international work-related networks. Dr. Kooner's current work focuses on creating and using 360-degree immersive video apps to disseminate research around the effective child protection practices. And I really appreciated this international perspective of this paper because the co-authors, Liz Badeau, Harry Ferguson, and Eileen Joy, reside in the UK and New Zealand. And when I first read this article, I thought it would mainly be focusing on the technological aspects of using Facebook in child welfare practice. But what emerged from the conversation was really a discussion about ethics and values. I've often explained to my own students that we really need to understand ethics and values in social work practice, but especially when it comes to digital technologies. And I was happy that Dr. Kuhner centered our conversation on this subject. The reality is that social media is not going away anytime soon, and we will continue to see the prevalence of digital technologies in our clients' and consumers' lives. So we really need to better understand these technologies and the ethics of employing them. We discuss several ideas and resources in this podcast, such as the larger research project that this paper actually comes from. And if you want to find out more, you could go and visit our show notes on the Husita blog at www.husita.org. Or you can even reach out to Dr. Kuhner himself on Twitter at Akali65. Or I'll spell that out as well, A-K-A-L-I-6-5. You can find Dr. Kuhner there on Twitter. You can email him as well. So I hope you enjoy this podcast. All right. Welcome to the Husita podcast. We have Dr. Tersum Singh Kuhner talking about his article called The Use of Facebook in Social Work Practice with Children and Families, Exploring Complexity in an Emerging Practice. And he's the lead author on this article with Liz Badeau, Harry Ferguson, and Eileen Joy. I hope I said their names right. Yeah, but uh, Dr. Kuhner, thank you again for joining us on the podcast. Nice to have you. Thank you. Um, thank you for having me. So the first question I really wanted to jump into is within the article, 
You explain that examining Facebook use in social work practice was not really an initial aim of this research project, but more that it emerged during this process. So I was wondering, can you tell us just a bit more about the study and how this Facebook theme or this phenomenon, this part of the study emerged? Yeah, uh, basically uh, we undertook a two year study that looked at how do social workers establish, sustain long-term relationships with children and parents in child protection cases. And we also wanted to look at how practice relationships and outcomes for families were influenced by organizational cultures, office designs, and other forms of staff support. And what made our study different was that we undertook 18 months of field work. And what that allowed us to do was follow social workers around, pick up um, on issues such as tone, body language, and all of those elements that are very difficult to explore with just one-off encounters or in interviews with uh, social workers or their managers or the service users. And so the advantage of following people around, literally following them around in their offices. So we sat and we sat in their offices and watched what they did on their computers, on their phones, the discussions they had around the water cooler, standing outside having a cigarette or a vape, walking from the office to the car, getting in the car, talking to them in the car about what they felt, how their preparations were taking place before going out. The, the talk from the car to the front door of the house, observing what happened at the front door, going into the home. All of those elements, when you break them up, uh, are really quite important. And, and this, this work is based quite a lot on Harry Ferguson's previous work. And so the advantage of doing that was over this period of time, we shadowed people, we took detailed notes, we audio recorded um, the, the interviews and what was going on, obviously with permission. Then after the 15 months of fieldwork finished, we put all the material, all this really rich data, 15 months of fieldwork, really, really rich data into Envivo, and we started coding it. And as we started coding it, we started to pull out certain terms such as social media, Facebook, and so on. And then when we did searches of these codes, we ended up with quite a large document that started to outline some of the observations that we'd all individually made that were taking place in the office, uh, in discussions, in homes, and so on. And that's how basically the element of social media um, use came out uh, from the data. And so originally our research questions were, well, how do social workers establish and sustain long-term relationships with children and parents and child protection cases? And how do office cultures, designs, and other forms of self-support influence that? And what we didn't expect, to be honest, was this golden nugget that came out of the data. Yeah, and I think that's really interesting. I mean, even within this study, uh, you've pointed to some other studies in child welfare practice here in the United States with uh, Melanie Sage and some of her co-authors. One of the things that I really appreciated about this study uh, is that it's one of really only a few that are out there and perhaps more are coming and are in the pipeline to be published but uh, we just don't have a lot of information regarding the use of social media or Facebook specifically 
in child welfare practice. And I really, really appreciated one of the distinctions that you and your authors made within the article about uh, the terms that you use in defining uh, the difference between monitoring and surveillance when it comes to using Facebook in social work practice. So for all of our listeners out there, can you just can you explain a little bit more about how your team defined these terms and how you use them in practice? Yeah, sure. So basically, we, we came out with, with three terms. Originally, what we wanted to do was look at the Kantian and utilitarian standpoints. So Kantian was that uh, you would basically never lie to anybody and uh, you would always be truthful in, in your interactions. Utilitarian was much more about uh, what benefits the greater good. So whatever means you undertake, basically, as long as the greater good is achieved, then th that's, that's your aim. And we started the paper by looking at these two ethical standpoints. But what we realized was, was actually, this is way more complex than that. Because there's more than just the binary choice between not looking or looking. It all depends on context. And so we, we came out with three terms, monitoring, surveillance, and being drawn in. And the term monitoring basically refers to instances where social workers make their service users, the families and so on, aware that they, that they may monitor their social media accounts. And in the authors that you mentioned, I mean, some of them talk about the fact that you can't really get a holistic picture nowadays of people's lives unless you actually draw in elements of their social media uh, lifestyles as well, with the caveat, obviously, that there's a performative aspect to that as well. So monitoring was seeking permission, making service users and families aware that they may look at their online uh, profiles. Surveillance, on the other hand, was basically used as a tool where social workers wouldn't tell um, service users that they may look at and get intelligence from uh, their social media accounts. And the purpose of this was covert surveillance. It was looking at social media sites without the awareness or consent of service users. And, and this did occur, and, and it occurred for a number of reasons, and it's very, very complex. And one of the things that we didn't want to do was criticize social workers for the use of uh, social media, but we wanted to understand, well, why did it take place? And, and we can explore that in, in a bit uh, more detail a little bit later, Jimmy, if you want. And then the third element, which we just didn't come across anywhere else, and we think that this is a new, um, this is something new that our research has drawn out, was this concept of being drawn in. And this is a situation where practitioners face the dilemma of whether or not to look at a service user's online presence based on the information that they may see on Facebook. And this information is given to them by third parties, and this could actually include their managers as well. So the condition of being drawn in was you could have a very strong Kantian stance and be very clear that you don't want to uh, surveil your service users. But actually, if information is being presented to you, then you hit an ethical dilemma. Can you ignore information that can potentially protect the well-being of a child if it's given to you? And this is where the, the drawn in 
um, definition comes in because it, it just doesn't appear in the literature at all. And again, you can see that you move away from a binary approach to something that's much more in depth and much more complex. Yeah, and I appreciate that because too often we're, we're caught up in a very polarized society here in the United States, uh, politically speaking. But that also, I think, trickles into some other things where we want to see this dichotomy. And oftentimes it's a false dichotomy that exists in our social work practice or other aspects of our lives. So I appreciate this continuum that you guys highlighted in this article and this aspect of being drawn in. Now, in England, where your university is based and, and a lot of the research took place, uh, I'm wondering what kind of uh, codes of ethics or regulatory requirements exist around uh, surveillance, monitoring, or being drawn in? Because I know in the United States, obviously, we have our National Association Code of Ethics, and they recently revised it oh, a couple of years ago, I guess now, that uh, we really have to seek a client or a consumer's informed consent in order to do this type of thing. And I'm not sure, I haven't really seen any research, but I'm not sure if agencies and organizations and social workers themselves are fully implementing this requirement of our ethical code, or if they're doing it um, as it should be designed and informing clients before coming across any of their social media information. So I was wondering, what does it look like uh, where you are at and how maybe that can pose some ethical dilemmas for social workers in the field? Well, Jimmy, before I answer that question, can I tell you something about, um, I, I, I taught two sessions recently using Zoom, one to a group of social workers, police officers, uh, and other healthcare professionals in Northern Ireland via Zoom. And then I did another session uh, for social work students and allied professionals using Zoom as well in the UK. And one thing that I realized was the emotion that uh, can come out from people about if, and what I've done is I've created a set of case, digital case studies, animations, basically. Mm -hmm. And I've based them on the three elements, surveillance, monitoring, and being drawn in. And what I found was that the emotional reaction, you know, that binary thing that you mentioned, the emotional reaction can sometimes actually cloud a person's ability to step back and actually look at, well, what should I be doing? Because um, that ethical, um, the, the depth of the ethical standpoint comes out so sharply because it gets challenged. And so when we talk about codes, when we talk about codes of practice, we have to take that into account as well, because you can strongly feel one ethical way and what happens is, is regardless of the evidence that's presented to you or the codes presented to you, your interpretation can still be influenced very strongly from your ethical standpoint. And this is where you have to stop. And this is one of the arguments that we put forward in our paper, that as a profession, we have to stop and take a step back. Because sometimes the emotional impact of what we're being asked to do or what we seek to do, because you know, if we're protecting children, then some people will argue that you've got to do that under any circumstances. Others will argue that actually, no, th th there is a point where you need to have that relationship with people to be able to build a safe environment. What comes first kind of thing. And what really struck me in both these training events was the power 
of the ethical standpoint. And so when we talk about, for example, uh, codes of practice in, in England, we have the Social Work in England Professional Codes of Practice. We have the British Association of Social Workers, uh, social media codes, as well as the codes of ethics as well. But it depends on it depends on context. It depends on the situation and it depends on your reading of that situation as well. And so that's the codes of practice. And so, again, it's not really that straightforward. But when it came to legislation, and this is something that we found out after the research, we came across um, a piece of English legislation called the Regulation of Investigatory Powers Act 2000, REPA for short. And basically, it appears to say that under this act, viewing social networking sites by members of the state, such as social workers, in an investigatory capacity once is not classed as surveillance and does not require REPA authorization. However, repeatedly viewing social media, social networking sites of service users without their express consent, for example, to check on their relationships, falls under the definition of surveillance and would appear to require prior consent of the person posting online or repro author authorization. However, even though this legislation exists, there is, it's such a contested area because we found on Twitter um, barristers arguing with each other about how to implement this act, and indeed, even if the act applied to, to social workers. And so one of the things that we've started to say in our training is because it's such a contested area, anybody who is unsure should seek legal advice from their agency and to check whether multi-agency protocols already exist in place. So for example, if, if you're doing a multidisciplinary investigation of some nature, do the police have a right to undertake this work to make sure that no evidence is compromised. And so, Jimmy, it's so confusing, you know, it genuinely is. And I don't know what the, the situation is like in other countries, in the US or elsewhere, but this is another thing that the paper pulled out was um, that actually there is a need for clarity. Yeah, absolutely. And one more time, what year did you say that that act was? 2000. 2000. So that was really pre-most social media platforms as we know them today. Absolutely. And the thing with most legislation, so for example, le legislation related to the production or the reproduction of pornographic images, for example, that predates social media as well. And so the legislation will look to see if the existing statutes as they are can actually be applied to the current um, situations in which we live. And if they can be applied, then they are applied without being updated. But I'm no legal expert, by the way. Yeah. Okay, I just have to clarify that. Yeah, but I think this is still just one example of how throughout social work education across the world, uh, ethics of how we go about our practice is so important, you know, and I've talked now in several interviews here on the podcast about this is one of the things that Husida we care a lot about is the ethical and appropriate use of technology for human betterment and being able to, in the absence of any regulation, or even if the regulation has been there 10 years before most social media platforms hit the masses, 
taking that pause can be a really important step to ask yourself as a practitioner, are we doing the right thing by our clients or our consumers? Is this okay? How would I feel about this if I was in their shoes and somebody was perusing all of my social media channels and gathering this information for whatever reasons? So I think that's really interesting and, and important for social work education that we, we have some of that in place. And I know, at least here in the U.S., we oftentimes are playing a lot of catch up in social work and especially in relation to technology, but um, certainly in relation to a lot of things, we, we can always do a lot better. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that that applies across the world, really, not just in the U.S., Along the lines of this ethics then and, and thinking about this, because this is actually quite, I found a pretty impactful piece of your paper of this research is the ethical implications of this. What do you think social workers and human service providers actually need to be aware of when they begin to incorporate social media into their practice? I think that there's a number of things really. And, and what I'll try to do is I'll, I'll try to encapsulate those. And, and this is why one of the, the words, a couple of the words that we put in the title was emerging complexity. And one of the things in England uh, over the past 10 odd years, there's uh, been this economic approach to funding public services called austerity. And basically, it's just a massive cutback. And so social workers are ending up with bigger caseloads. There's fewer members of staff, more agency workers and so on. And so when it comes to thinking about the, the use of um, social media in social work, you have to consider the context. And one of the things that we found really was important in considering this was Again, rather than simply criticizing social workers, questionable uses of social media, we wanted to understand, well, why are these behaviors taking place? Because it's critically important. And one of the beauties of doing an ethnographic study is, is that it's spread over 15 months and you can actually take the time to observe and question. And it's not a snapshot, but it's actually a long-term observation. So one of the things was that the lack of resources based on austerity was lead, leading to high levels of anxiety. And some service users didn't want social work involvement and were uncooperative and secretive. And so what social workers tried to do was to try to alleviate you know, their sense of anxiety. They started to use Facebook to look to see what was going on in their lives. And part of this was a strategy to cope with their anxiety and their risk, because as, as social workers working in an organization, they just wanted to defend themselves against the unbearable feelings of uncertainty about the safety of children, because ultimately that's what we're there for. And so if people were not engaging, if parents weren't engaging, they were being secretive and so on, social workers were trying their best to look after the, after the children that were under their care and trying to find other ways of accessing what was going on in their lives. And it's the culture of social work and child protection that produces these anxieties. And it's not really likely to, to change unless we actually think about the emotional complexity of the, complexity of the work and the, the risks and dangers that we have to deal with on, on a day-to-day -day basis. And the thing is, is that in terms of accessibility, 
it's easy, isn't it? You know, Trottier talks about the fact that, you know, social media makes large sections of social life visible and that investigative agencies are taking advantage of that visibility. And you mentioned Boyd earlier on um, saying that actually, you know, even if we can see this stuff, we've got to be careful because there's performative elements to it as well. Mm -hmm. And so how can we trust what we see? Because, you know, it could be exaggerated and you have to question the reliability of the online findings as well in Colmes and Tobe talk about the analogy you know it's so easy to get that access you know but would you actually go out in real life and physically follow a service user around because you were feeling anxious but the crucial difference is is that the thing is is that it's inexpensive it's invisible it's convenient and it's really easy to use the internet to observe what's going on in families lives but but the thing is is that to understand why social workers may undertake certain social media related activities in relation to their work, you have to understand the context within which they work. And, and if you don't do that, then it's easy to say, you shouldn't be doing that, you shouldn't be doing that. Mm-hmm. You must understand the emotional impact the work has on the workers as well. Yeah, and in child welfare, at least here in the United States, that's one of the areas of social work practice that we see some of the largest uh, numbers around burnout and uh, turnover with child welfare workers only lasting a year, two years, I can't remember, two years and maybe a couple of months before they just have to say, I'm, I'm done, I need to go do something else, I can't do this anymore. And obviously we have some that are fantastic and stay in the field much longer, but um, yeah, what you're talking about with some of the issues around resources and those same things we have here in the U.S. as well. And I'm sure many countries are facing similar measures with austerity. So, Well, Jimmy, also remember that uh, two of the authors were based in New Zealand as well. Right. So um, Liz Beddow and uh, Eileen Joy. That's um, right. And so, so their perspective comes into this as well, because, you know, that's the international element of it as well. So there's the US, there's New Zealand, there's the UK. And, you know, I, I think that you'd probably find that this is a phenomenon pretty much globally uh, out there within social care agencies. Yeah, no. And, and I think that's a really strong aspect to this paper as well as to have that international perspective. Thank you for bringing that back up because it's so important. You know, one of the other things that I loved about the, this, this study was some of the, the methods that y'all used. And you already kind of talked about some of the participant observation in uh, looking at social workers and how they use social media. Um, but I was wondering if you, maybe you can just expand a little bit more about that process uh, and what it maybe looked like and uh, what kind of outcomes you were able to get from following social workers around to uncover their use of social media and, and Facebook. Well, but basically, I mean, the study was much larger than, than the, the study of Facebook. And so we had 15 months of field work and we were located at two local authorities which were about 200 miles apart. The one local authority's design was an open plan office, a really large open plan office. And the second local authority's design was much more traditional in that they had smaller offices and they had of about eight or nine members of staff. The managers and the senior workers sat with the social workers in those small teams. 
and the retention rate in those small teams was much greater, so staff stayed there longer. Whereas with the big open plan offices, uh, retention rates were worse and people were hot desking. And so the sense of team and community wasn't quite the same and support mechanisms. Managers sat in separate rooms. And, and so it was fascinating, you know, watching the difference between how the two different um, designs really in, in terms of office interacted on staff supervision, staff morale, uh, and also in social workers effectively being able to undertake their work. And so we did follow practitioners around and with the appropriate permissions, we uh, interviewed uh, the service users that the social workers worked with. We interviewed the social workers, we interviewed the social works managers. And what we did was we, we came out with 30 long-term studies, uh, case studies. And so 15 at each venue. And that helped us draw out a range of things about to how tone and atmosphere can make a difference, how just simple engagement in terms of body language and all of those elements really had, had an impact. And, and the 15 month case study has really drawn out quite a lot of really in-depth detailed information. You know, we're looking at how hostility uh, on the part of uh, families when you work with them can have an impact, how distance can have an impact. Yeah. You know, if, if you're working in, if, 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 some, if one of the children that you're, uh, is on your caseload lives quite a distance away, how sometimes they become uh, less to the front of your mind simply because of the distance that they're away. But there's a whole range. Uh, Jimmy, what I can do is I can give you a link to our project website, yeah. uh, if you like. And um, there's a number of research papers that are freely available for, for, for people to look at. Oh, fantastic. I'll absolutely include that out on the Husita blog with the rest of any show notes that and resources that we want to share with our listeners. So thank you. That would be amazing. So in, in following these folks around for 15 months, wow, that's quite a long time to be in the field. And just observing some of their actions, observing some of the ways that they use social media, you included in the paper, in the publication, some participant quotes. And I have to say, some of these quotes that you included were a little shocking, but not totally surprising to me. Because, I mean, I've had students of mine here in the U.S. say that their agency has a Facebook profile and they use that profile to surveil some of their clients. And, you know, even going back to your distinctions that we just talked about between monitoring surveillance and being drawn in, what would you say most social workers are doing then when it comes to using Facebook in child protection? Um, are they mostly surveilling? Or are they mostly monitoring? Are they trying to connect at all? Or do they feel good about using Facebook in their social work practice? What were some of your findings? So I think to answer that question, I, I again have to go back to the point about it's about managing anxiety. It's also about your ethical standpoint. It's about protecting children. It's about balancing the rights of parents and children uh, as part of their strategy to cope with the anxiety and risk for social workers and the organizations to, to basically defend themselves against unbearable feelings of uncertainty about the safety of children. And so I think where you had a, a very strong Kantian position or in fact, you didn't know how to use social media. Social workers were clearly saying, we don't use it. You know, 
uh, and we wouldn't use it because um, we want to respect the confidentiality of the families that we're working with. Others would use it and they would argue, well, we're using it because we're trying to protect children. Yeah. And, and so, you know, that, that's our primary concern. And we will try to uh, protect the privacy of the parents as well. But ethically, the protection of the children comes before the privacy of the parents. And in some cases, um, there was uh, people within organisations, for example, chairs of case conferences who would ask social workers, well, what's been going on in Facebook? And they would know that uh, the parents were unaware that they, that they were being surveilled mm -hmm. and, and that information was being used. So, so Jimmy, it's, it's like I said, you know, there's no real easy response to that question because you have to put that question into the context of a very complex and very difficult uh, job. Yeah. But I mean, it sounds like some are using it for a variety of reasons. Um, and since the study has been published, have you guys done any follow-ups? Are there still uh, some uses of Facebook in child welfare practice there in England that's happening? Or, or what's it look like now? Well, I, I have to be honest, we've not done any follow-up uh, okay. because, we, because we we're still actually going through all the data that we've collected. Sure, you um, have 15 months worth of data, so that's understandable. And, and it's very rich data as well. You know, it, it's, it's not just... Um, numbers but you know the, the quotes and transcripts and, and a whole bunch of stuff but we would like to go back and, and and see what's happening but for us and i hope that we've achieved this and we are going out into the field we are talking to people what we want to do is trigger discussion we want to trigger discussion and what we don't want to do is is, is basically negatively look at social workers you know we don't want to criticize them what we want to do is, is we want to get the design, you know, society and, and, uh, and basically the, the way different organizations are designed to think about, well, what is it that we can do to help alleviate any instances of perhaps unethical use? Mm -hmm. And But at the same time, you know, um, it's always that very difficult balance between if it's about protecting a child, should you look or shouldn't you look? Yeah. And I mean, it, to me, it kind of sounds like the idea of, you know, we want to use technology for good and wholesome purposes. And if that is protecting children, so be it. Let's go ahead and use it. But still, we have to recognize that other side of the continuum of when are we infringing um, on the privacy of individuals? And when does that become problematic or uh, how can that actually harm those individuals or those families even more? And so what it sounds like to me is that you and your team are really looking at this from a very holistic type of lens that it's not that the use of social media is good or bad. It could be both good and bad. I don't know if maybe I'm overstretching there a little bit or... No, no, I, I think that this, this is the thing about the paper is, is we want to trigger this debate because we think that we should stop and actually look at what we're doing. And th there's always the situation, isn't there, Jimmy? No matter where you are, if your ethical standpoint is one that says, 
the well-being of the child comes before the privacy of the parents. Mm -hmm. that's, the, that's the step you will take. On the other hand, if your ethical standpoint is, is that the privacy of the parents should always come before the well-being of the child, then that's the ethical stance that you will take. And so, it, and again, if I go back to that emotion element that I was mentioning before, what you'll find is, is if you, you give 10 people this paper to read, potentially you'll have 10 different perspectives if you present a case study to them. And, and this, is, this is why we need to stop and we need to actually have a conversation. You know, we, we need to have this conversation because although this seems like familiar territory, it's actually new territory. Mm -hmm. and, and we need to have that holistic view because otherwise potentially we could be shutting down a discussion that helps us get to the position that we need to be at to be able to use this technology ethically. Yes. And, you know, it's interesting. So I, I teach an ethics class to our graduate students in our social work program here in California. And I introduce to them some, you know, a handful of ethical decision making models or frameworks to help them when they're in the field. Clearly, the code of ethics from the National Association of Social Workers is uh, front and foremost one of those frameworks that we use because they're they'll be governed in part uh, by that code of ethics. Uh, but we also, I have this book, um, Lowenberg, Dahlgolf, and I can't remember the other author, uh, author off the top of my head, but uh, they present a framework as well that kind of does what part of what you're talking about in looking at a specific ethical issue. Uh, are you going to put like parents' rights and privacy before those of the safety of the child or the safety of the child. And then that's how you proceed with that specific situation, which is interesting to then say, we need to pause and really consider both of those simultaneously, because that's not really an easy thing to do within child welfare specifically when it's like, maybe you have to make a, a decision fairly quickly. And, you know, oftentimes maybe you do have several hours or a week to make a decision what that could impact a child. But in other instances, you might not. And so to be able to do that process of thinking critically about that situation could be fairly challenging. Um, I'm wondering if you have any then any suggestions for those that are listening. I mean, we have potential students and others that are listening to the podcast. How can they work through uh, a scenario where their organization is saying, yes, you need to go surveil or monitor, or they've just been drawn in and they, they don't feel there's some angst and anxiety about doing that around their clients and their families. What kind of advice can we give to them in with this process or this type of a situation? I think the, the thing, if, if say, for example, we look at the drawn in, um, distinction. This is the one that clearly demonstrated to us that in situations that you've described, we tend to be risk averse. And so what we will do is we will avoid risk. And so if somebody presents this information to us, what we tend to do is put the well-being of the child first and we will act on that information. Yeah. Particularly if we don't have much time to actually act on it because there's always that 
feeling, you know, that it's really quite unbearable that if you don't act on it and something happens to that child, how could you then live with yourself afterwards? And people coming into social work know that these are the situations that they're going to be presented with, Mm -hmm. which is why it's a question that has to be addressed at the policy level, has to be addressed at the legislative level, also the organisational level, as well as the practice level. And at the end of all of those things is the actual feelings that social workers have and the impact that those feelings then have on the action that they undertake. Because you have values, but it's how those values actually transfer into your actions that you need to think about. And and this is why we say that you have to take a step back. But ultimately, Jimmy, I mean, I go back to the drawn in, we will always be risk averse. This is my understanding. This is what I've seen. Because the thought of not acting on something and a child actually coming to risk is is, is something that the vast majority of us would, would not want to have to live with. Absolutely. Wow. Well, I mean, initially when I started this podcast interview with you, Dr. Kuner, I thought we're just going to talk about Facebook. And I mean, my one of my next questions is pros and cons around using Facebook or social media. We'll get to that in just a second. But we're really, like you said, talking about thoughts, feelings and values of social work professionals that are engaged in this space and the ethical dilemmas and scenarios that they'll be confronted with. So it's not really about the social media, which I think is also a good thing to remember. It's not totally about this tool, whether it's Facebook or whatever, that it really is about you as a professional and your clients and your consumers, those individuals that you're working with. Um, I think there's also maybe some implications and maybe you and your team are getting into this around self-care because as you've mentioned, there's the anxiety and the angst that some professionals will feel depending on the decisions that they make uh, that could ultimately lead to some burnout and leaving the profession or leaving child welfare in general. I think that's another thing that is important to always pay attention to in thinking about it from that organizational level how can we ensure that we're taking care of our social workers so that they can continue to impact positively the lives of those that they work with? But Jimmy, there is another thing, and it's it's the frameworks within which we work as well. Are they fit for purpose? Mm. And should we, should we be stopping and thinking, actually, do we need to review this? Because is it appropriate now for the time frame within which we live? And there are some people who argue that, the ethics remain the same regardless of the tools we have available to us. Oh, yeah. Because the ethics will remain the same. It's our interpretation and our use of those ethics. There are others who say, no, the ethics need to be updated because when they were mm-hmm. produced, we didn't live in the world that we live in now. And this is why we need to stop and, and have that debate because the framework perhaps needs to be reflected on. And if it needs to be changed, then let's change it. But if it doesn't, then let's think about the way that we teach people to use it. And that's a really important part being, you know, we're both in social work education respectively and, 
and teaching students, teaching future professionals how to use these tools, whether it's Facebook, social media tools, or ethical decision-making models and understanding their values. Yes, 100% agree that it is time to maybe take a pause and really consider how to use these tools more effectively and more appropriately. So I do want to come back to this question though. And so I'll, I'll, you know, press you a little bit and ask you, you know, the article points out some of the pros and cons to using Facebook in social work practice. I was wondering if you could explain a couple of the pros and a couple of the cons, what those might be around using Facebook specifically or social media in general. If I, and I hope you don't think that I'm copping out here, <laughs> which, which, which is a, uh, a UK term for saying that, you know, not addressing the question. Sure, sure. <laughs> but in our discussion, I, I hope that the listeners have picked up that whatever the pros are can potentially be the cons as well. Mm. And so it's really dependent upon the context and the situation that you find yourself in. I mean, it's so easy to look online to, to basically follow people around. And, and in some respects, you know, you, you could argue that where you have fewer people working because of austerity, job cuts and so on, that actually this is a good tool just to stay on top of things. But at the same time, it's a con as well, because, you know, uh, then are organizations going to use that as an argument for then not employing more people yes. to do the job? Because you've got now technologies that allow you to surveil or observe in, in different ways. And so I, I, I think it's a difficult question. And it's a difficult question because it's dependent upon the context. It's dependent upon your work environment, your ethical standpoint, and actually the types of people that you're working with. And so I hope you don't think that's a copyright. <laughs> but again, it, it, it is that thing about not actually making this a simpler subject than it actually is. It's yeah. a very, very complex area. Absolutely. I would agree with you on that. I will press one more time and ask you, though, do you feel or do you think that more social media use within social work is coming or are we at a point where we're good to pause or push back or what do you think the future holds related to social media in social work practice? Well, I don't know what you think, Jimmy, but in the UK, when I look at um, students and, and I look at how their social media and technology life is just part and parcel of the fabric of everything that they mm -hmm. do. It's absolutely embedded. And I always uh, do some teaching where I get them to stop and think about the type of information we could find out about them online, you know, uh, and, and the registered professionals, what, what type of profile or image does their online profile provide, you know, for somebody who, who may decide uh, to become curious and search for them online. Yeah. And, and, and what happens is, is I'm, I'm always surprised to a degree about how easy people are about sharing their information online. And so for me, I think it's only going to get more because it's, it's the world that 
young people are growing up in mm-hmm. and it's it's just normal if 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 that's the appropriate term to use it's unthinking because it's just what people do and for us as educators it's about saying to people when they come into the profession and when they're in the profession is to say well let's just stop a moment and have a think about this you know is is what you're representing because once you sign up to the profession you are representing the profession and if you have a look at your online profile and it's got pictures that are probably unsuitable is is that the way the profession wants itself represented yeah and so when we get and, and the problem arises for those who don't quite understand that which is where the learning then has to come in but but in answer to your question i, th- I think it's going to grow which is why we we need to take a pause we, we do need to stop because this is a live issue but it's also one that's going to become much more complex as time goes on. I mean, if I ask you a personal question, I hope you don't mind, Jimmy. Sure. On on average, how far is your mobile phone away from you, from your person? On average, over the course of 24 hours, my phone is no farther than probably... <laughs> 10 or 20 feet. Okay. And you have the ability to not only create content, but broadcast that content to a global audience, a potentially global audience. Yeah. And because you're an educator, perhaps you would think twice before hitting that publish button. All the time. But how how many people don't? And the content that's there, but not only the content that's there, from the last week but potentially from the last 10 or 12 years yeah you can tap into and if we're working with people who don't have any uh, security settings have open profiles then you know if, if you're under pressure why wouldn't you look if it's if it's to protect a child mm-hmm. you know somebody could argue well why wouldn't i look and, and these, these are the things that um, when you stop and put the alternative point of view to them and they start thinking about it, that's, that's, when, that's when you stop and you do actually question those potentially unthinking actions. And it's for us to force people to stop and think. And yeah. so, yeah, I, I think it's going to grow. I think it's going to become much more complex because the devices with which we communicate, the ease with which we communicate is just going to get easier and easier. Yeah, I, I 100% agree with that. Um, just in my perspective and the things that I see, some of the places where I tend to frequent online, I also see that happening with not just students, but the general public. You know, these phones and these devices, they're embedded with us for better or for worse. But uh, I don't think they're going away. And as an educator, I do in my classes, I spend a lot of time teaching my students about good ethical use of uh, social media and technology in general, uh, which I feel like sometimes my students don't appreciate, but maybe they do. If my students are listening, I hope you appreciate it. But uh, it's one of those things that absolutely, we're moving in a parallel here with 
increasing use of social media and digital technologies. So we also have to increase our cognizant use of those technologies and tools and have conversations or pause to be able to have those conversations in a way that we can use those tools appropriately. Absolutely. But Jimmy, just on a final point, when we have these discussions, to a point we've got to remove any strong emotions to one side for periods of time when we have this discussion, because we'll have camps where they'll be strongly anti-technology, strongly anti-technology. And, 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 you know, that's the, and that is from the heart and, you know, the blood will start circulating. The heart will start pounding. Absolutely not technology. No, no, no. There'll be the others on the other side, technology. Yes, yes, yes. Mm -hmm. And then everybody in between. And so for us to have this discussion, we've got to be honest, which, which I think generally the social work profession is, We've got to be reflective. Again, it's a strength of the social work profession. And we've got to be aware of the context and pick the right choices in terms of the journeys that we want to take. And, you know, we've got to look at the frameworks. We've got to look at the legislation. And we've got to look at what's making people behave the way they do, Mm -hmm. particularly if they decide to take an easy route out. and, And what can we do? to support them so that ethically they're behaving in the right way. Yeah. Whatever that may be. I know. And and we keep talking about this. We need to pause and have conversations. And uh, some of those conversations are beginning to happen. Uh, There's so much unknown, even on the corporate side of social media, the companies that own all of this data and everything that's happening there with surveillance capitalism, uh, thinking about how that impacts our clients' lives, but also us, you know, we're using those tools and all of those clicks equal data. Uh, those conversations have really begun to start happening, but it's, we need to keep having them more. And, and like you said, there's a whole swath of individuals, social work practitioners that are kind of in the middle, not really knowing which side or which camp to join. And I, for one, you know, I, I tend to really enjoy technology and and think that it is part of our future. And so we should shape that in a way that is going to be beneficial to our clients and consumers and us as uh, social work practitioners. But um, we, we really do need to be thoughtful. And as you mentioned, uh, reflect on all of this as we move forward. So this is, I mean, my final question for you was going to be, what kind of advice would you give for social work practitioners or supervisors organizations that employ social work practitioners and professionals regarding social media practices in the field. But we've kind of just spent the last few minutes talking about them. So I don't know, in summary, what one or two things might you just add as a piece of advice? Well, read the paper, (laughs) (laughs) obviously, listen to the podcast, but also take a moment to think about those elements that actually influence your behaviors because technology, a phone sitting on a table is a phone sitting on a table. Mm -hmm. It's what you actually do with it. And it's the ethics and also the outcomes that you want to achieve with that technology that you have to stop and consider. And if 
humans didn't use technology, it, nothing, it would do nothing, basically. And so before you push a button, before you look at something, before you engage in any activity online, step back and think, why am I doing this? And is why I'm doing it actually in the best interests of the person that I'm working for and with? Yes, solid advice. Well, Dr. Kuhner, thank you so much for your time today. I've really appreciated talking to you about this research paper, this project, and everything uh, related to ethics and technology. Such a good conversation that I've really learned a lot from. So again, thank you so much. No, thank you, Jimmy. And thank you for the opportunity to talk to you. I've really enjoyed it. The Husita Podcast is a production of the Human Services Information Technology Association. If you have any ideas or suggestions for the podcast, please connect with us on our website at www.husita.org, on Twitter at husita.org, or on Facebook at facebook.com slash husita.org. Be sure to rate the podcast and share it with your networks to help us create a world where information technology is used to promote the social good and human well-being. My name is Jimmy Young. You can also connect with me on Twitter at JimmySW. Thanks for listening to the podcast.